following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. Let's get back into Hebrews. We are in Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to begin in verse 1 this morning. Uh, Once again, I'm going to read a significant section of Hebrews, make a few comments as we read it. But then it's when we get to the end of that section that I want to revisit one of the themes that... uh, has become apparent as I've been looking at this. And in fact, there's two themes. We're going to have to put one of the themes off till another Sunday. We're just going to end up focusing on one. So, Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Even that first covenant, so this first covenant, we're referring back to Old Testament law, the covenant God made with Moses and the children of Israel. Even that first covenant had rules and regulations about how to worship and how to set up an earthly sanctuary for God. In the book of Exodus, we read how the first tent, which in this case was the tabernacle, was set aside for worship. We call it a holy place. And how inside it, they placed an oil lamp, a table, and the bread that was consecrated to God. Behind a second dividing curtain, there was another tent, which was called the most holy place. In there, they placed the golden incense altar and the golden ark of the covenant. Inside the ark were the golden urn that contained manna, the miraculous food God gave our ancestors in the desert. Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant that Moses brought down from the mountain. Above the ark were the golden images of heavenly beings of glory who shadowed the mercy seat. So you're going to see a picture up on the screen behind me, a little larger than the one that's been down in the corner, of what the temple looked like. So the outer court, the part on the left-hand side, this is for everybody. People did sacrifices here. If you were part of the children of Israel, you came into that part of the temple. The holy place, which is the middle section, there was a veil there. Inside was a golden candlestick with seven branches, also called a menorah. There was an altar for incense, also covered with gold. A gold-plated table with 12 loaves of bread, which symbolized the 12 tribes of Israel. If you go clear to the right of your screen, you now have the Holy of Holies. This is behind another veil. Now there's another gold censer where they burned incense, There's the Ark of the Covenant, like they said, filled with things of significance to the children of Israel. We could probably do a whole series on all the different kinds of symbolism in the temple. But the very next verse we're going to read in a second, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, I cannot go into any greater detail about this now, so I'm not going to either. I'll just note one thing about the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was a place where you entered with fear and trembling. So the high priest would go in there very rarely And the high priest would not prolong their prayers because they were afraid God would strike them down while they were in there. In fact, at least sometimes they apparently tied a rope around one of their ankles so in case God did strike them dead, uh, they could still pull them out of the Holy of Holies. It's uh, also recorded that some of the high priests would throw parties for their friends after they came out of the Holy Holies because they'd survived. Like, yes, I was in the presence of God and I made it. This will become significant later. So if you have questions like, why would God smite people in the Holy of Holies? That's a good question. That's a message plus kind of question today. Just know for our purposes this morning, the closer you got to the presence of God, and once again, this is symbolic. It's not like God wasn't anywhere else. This temple was created with layers of significance and reminding people that being in the presence of God was a big deal. And the more you were fully in the presence of God, the more it was a big deal. So if you can just take that away from this part, we're going to revisit this later. All right, verse 5. I cannot go into any greater detail about this now. 
When all is prepared, as it is supposed to be, the priests go back and forth daily into the first tent, that's the holy place, to carry out duties described in the law. Once a year, the high priest goes alone into that second tent, the most holy place, with blood to offer for himself and the unwitting errors or the sins of ignorance of the people. As long as that first tent is standing, the Holy Spirit shows us, the way into the most holy place has not yet been revealed to us. The first tent, and now we're looking at the whole thing. That first tent symbolizes the present time when gifts and sacrifices can be offered, but it can't change the heart and the conscience of the worshiper. These gifts and sacrifices deal only with regulations for the body, food, drink, various kinds of ritual cleansings necessary until the time comes to make things truly right. So when the anointed one, that is Jesus, arrived as high priest of the good things that are to come, he entered through a greater and more perfect sanctuary. Theme of Hebrews, Jesus is greater, Jesus is better, over and over. He enters through a greater and more perfect sanctuary that was not part of the earthly creation and was not made by human hands. He entered once for all time into the most holy place, entering not with the blood of goats or calves or some other prescribed animal, but offering his own blood and thus obtaining redemption for us for all time. Think about it. If the blood of bulls or of goats or the sprinkling of ashes from a heifer restores the defiled to bodily cleanliness and wholeness, how much more powerful is the blood of the anointed one, who through the eternal spirit offered himself as a spotless sacrifice to God, purifying your conscience from the dead things of the world to the service of the living God. Just a note, when we're going to take a couple Sundays after this Sunday to revisit some things in this passage. When we get to the next passage in Hebrews, which talks more about covenants and sacrifices, we're going to talk more about why blood, why this sacrifice. If Maybe you've grown up in church, or maybe you're new to church, and this language of blood just seems weird to you. We're going to revisit it in a couple weeks. It's just not my focus this morning. This is why Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Through his death, he delivered us from the sins that we had built up under the first covenant. And his death has made it possible for all who are called to receive God's promised inheritance. For whenever there is a testament or a will... The death of the one who made it must be confirmed because a will takes effect only at the death of its maker. It has no validity as long as its maker is still alive. So even the first testament, the first covenant, required blood to be put into action. When Moses had given all the laws of God to the people, he took the blood of calves and goats, water, hyssop, and scarlet wool, and he sprinkled the scroll and all the people. Once again, a lot of symbolism we don't have time to get into today telling them, this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for us. If that sounds familiar, that's what Jesus said to his disciples on the night when they did what we now call communion. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. Jesus is purposefully taking language that was known to the people and pointing out to them, I am the sacrifice, I am the one. In the same way, he also sprinkled blood upon the sanctuary and upon the vessels used in worship. Under the law, it's almost always the case that everything is purified in connection with blood. Without the shedding of blood, sin cannot be forgiven. This is actually a saying that was common in the Jewish community. There is no atonement. 
but by blood. So the writer of Hebrews is not introducing a new idea to his audience. They all assumed this. What he's introducing to them is this new and better way, how Jesus has fulfilled the requirements of everything they've been doing before. Since what was given in the Old Covenant was the earthly sketch of a heavenly reality, this was sufficient to cleanse the earthly sanctuary. But in heaven, a more perfect sacrifice was needed. The anointed one did not enter into handcrafted sacred spaces, that is, imperfect copies of heavenly originals. He entered into heaven itself, where he stands in the presence of God on our behalf. There, he does not offer himself over and over as a sacrifice, as the high priest on earth does when he enters the most holy place each year with blood other than his own. That would require Jesus' repeated suffering since the beginning of the world. No, he has appeared once now, at the end of the age, to abolish sin offerings forever by offering himself as a sacrifice. He's the ultimate sin offering. Um, Adam Clark, who was a commentator, quoted one of the early church fathers with a summary this way, and I really like this summary. Although Christ be but one, yet he is understood by us under a variety of forms. He's the tabernacle on account of the human body in which he dwelt. He's the table because he's our bread of life. He's the ark which has the law of God enclosed within because he is the word of the Father. He's the candlestick because he's our spiritual light. He's the altar of incense because he is the sweet-smelling odor of our sanctification. He is the altar of burnt offering because he is the victim by death on the cross for the sins of the whole world. Uh, The final two verses in this section. Just as mortals are appointed to die once and then experience a judgment, so the anointed one, our liberating king, was offered once in death to bear the sins of many and will appear a second time not to deal again with sin, but to rescue those who eagerly await his return. And so like I said, the next section in Hebrews is going to keep talking about sacrifices and covenants. And we're going to dive more deeply into that in a couple weeks. But something else caught my eye this week as I was reading this, and it's all about temples. And now I'm going to go back to the very first verse we read. This was Hebrews 9.1. Even that first covenant had rules and regulations about how to worship and how to set up an earthly sanctuary for God. So, this idea of setting up an earthly sanctuary for God is all throughout the Bible, starting in Genesis. Genesis 1. I mean, Genesis 1 and 2 we talk a lot about, and there's layers upon layers of things to discuss in those sections. But one of the things seems clear Genesis 1 is making the point that God is creating a cosmic temple for him to move into. In fact, the term resting of what God does on day 7 is not just God moves in and now he's just like resting, napping, taking some time off. The resting idea has to do with ruling and reigning. That God created this universe which he ordered with his purposes in which he is going to be the high priest, the king. And after he is done ordering the universe to his purposes, creating a temple, he moves in. And now he sits and reigns in this temple that he created. So then we see the tabernacle as a replication of this in some ways. Now with the people of Israel... There's this place where the presence of God rests. 
It rules and it reigns. Uh, once you get to Solomon, Solomon builds a temple, and then the temple becomes this place, this touch point, this symbol. Once again, not because God wasn't present anywhere else, but it's meant to be this very specific reminder of what it looks like when God has a temple, and God moves into this temple, and now when you are in this temple, when you are in the presence of God, buckle up. God is strong. God is powerful. He's holy. He's pure. And when God is that near and that present, I, I think those those symbols that the children of Israel used were just meant to remind them God is a big deal. And if you enter into God's temple, know that this is a big deal as well. In fact, Adam Clark again notes, the Jews believed the tabernacle was the epitome of the world. Like there was something about how the tabernacle was organized and what you did in the tabernacle that was supposed to be significant for everything about life. Now, we don't see tents and tabernacles the same way the Jewish people did. So for us to try to enter into that with 21st century perspective is a difficult thing, perhaps. Just know, this is how the Jewish people viewed it. So my question as I was reading the passage is this. If the Old Covenant had a sanctuary, does the New Covenant have one as well? Because the writer of Hebrews is making clear, everything I'm talking to you about in this passage, is a, it's a symbol, it's a shadow, it's a sign of something to come that will be better, that will be part of the new covenant rather than the old. So it's going to look different, but it's all foreshadowing. Everything is foreshadowing. We have a temple in the Old Testament. My question is, what is the temple in the New Testament? Well, Acts makes clear, as does this passage, that God doesn't dwell in temples made by human hands. Church of the Living God is not a hot spot for God like a Wi-Fi. It's not like when you were home, you were distant from God. The closer you got, the more you got full bars. God's everywhere, right? God's everywhere. Um, when we gather in this church, once again, this church is a type of symbol. I'll get to this a little bit more. But to, to say that um, God will now still dwell in temples in some way is not to say that God is absent from anywhere else. It's meant to be a reminder about the seriousness of the presence of God. So, the Bible talks about temples in the New Covenant. And it says, uh, our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the, the Bible uses body in two ways. One way is simply that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians, our body is the temple. And that's in the context of a discussion, in that case, about sexual purity. It says, be careful what you do with your body. Your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. But then we also find out that the church is God's body on earth. And there's all kinds of passages that the church is God's body. And in 1 Peter 2.5, you see these things combined. We're the living stones that build the house of God. We are the temple. Individually and corporately, we are the temple. So now, uh, it gets real. Considering how seriously the Jewish people took the temple in the Old Testament, how seriously ought we take the temple now in the New Testament, in the New Covenant? If that, that temple was this symbol or this reminder that the presence of God is a big deal, take it seriously, and now we are the temple, and now we are, in a sense, in the Holy of Holies 24-7 all the time. Like, maybe we should walk around with ropes tied around our ankles just so we don't forget. 
how serious it is to be in the presence of a living God. So we're, we're the temple now. And I want to talk about three different ways in which I think the foreshadowing of the Old Testament of the temple is meant to teach us something about the significance of who we are now as a temple. I'm going to give a flyover this morning because next week I'm going to revisit it in more depth. Um, yeah, so you may have a lot of questions that still remain as I get through this. Come to Message Plus, but next week we'll unpack it a little bit more. First of all, temples are testimonies. In, in the case of the Israelites in the Old Testament, that temple was the place where they worshipped their God, or the tabernacle was. Certainly other cultures have built things as well, but just the fact they had this tabernacle... They took everywhere with them. It was in the center of the camp. It was the heart and soul of their community. And it was this testimony about who their God was. As history progresses, and now instead of tabernacles, we have temples. And then uh, when I was in college, I studied how they built cathedrals in the Middle Ages. And before the printing press, this is a whole other story, uh, people sent messages through architecture, particularly through religious architecture. So you see a picture up here of a cathedral. They were, they were laid out and designed in a particular way. It had a pattern on the ground. When you walked in, your eyes were meant to be drawn upward because the point of a temple was to take your eyes up toward heaven, not to the person in front, not to the people next to you. When you were in a cathedral, you were meant to look up. And they organized everything in that fashion. So in one sense... Uh, it still remained, at least for a while, that buildings sent a message. Uh, the names of a church sends a message. I don't know if you can read the names here on the screen. But just, just uh, don't anybody shout this out. But give me your initial impression of what you think this church is like when you hear this name. Uh, Word of Faith Church Center. Do you have an impression in your mind? Is it the same impression as you have for the leaven for Humane Vitae? Names make a difference. This isn't good or bad, by the way. I'm just pointing out that temples send messages. They have a testimony. Even the way you name something gives a testimony. It's an expectation about what you'll find within. Uh, the reputation of the people walking into the temple send a, a testimony. They send a message. And I, sometimes it can be just how people look and how they dress, which is fine. If you go to Redeemer Lutheran in New York, it's going to look really different than if you go to Jesus People in Chicago. It's going to tell you something about the kind of people who attend that church. That's a neutral thing. It's not a good or bad. It's just a reality. But then think about reputations and communities. Now we're talking about how you do business, uh, what your family looks like, what your friendships looks like, where you hang out on the weekends. These types of things, they're a testimony. And when someone says, I attend this place, someone else is going to go, oh, you, you do. That could be a good or bad thing for the reputation of the place which you attend. The lyrics and the style of music send a message. Um, some churches do hymns, some churches do choruses. It, it sends a message that it's simply a different kind of church. Once again, not good or bad, it's just different. I could have added in here order of service. You have high order churches where they go through liturgy and they stand and they kneel and they burn incense and they do things like that. We don't do that. Even that sends a message about a kind of church that you are. And then finally, the Bible talks about the importance of us being a city on a hill. That there's something about our impact in the community 
about our reputation, about our being out, a boots-on-the-ground kind of interaction with people. We're supposed to be the place that shines bright in the darkness. So all of these are, are forms of messages when we think of physical temples. I'm going to stick with that analogy. So now my question is, how does this apply to our temples with us as individuals? In the Old Testament, we're cautioned not to take God's name in vain. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Um, it, it's certainly not less than when we speak the name of God, using it with honor rather than swearing. But it's so much more than that. Taking the name of God is taking the reputation of God. Now we have said, I am aligning myself with God. I'm now an ambassador. I've used this term before in this church. I'm an ambassador. When I claim to be an ambassador for God, it's a reasonable expectation for people around me that when I go somewhere, they expect me to represent the God for whom I am an ambassador. Now, am I a perfect ambassador? Thank you. Are you a perfect ambassador? We're not talking about perfection. This is just how is our life oriented It's not just how we seek to honor God. It's what we do when we stumble and fall, how we get back up. All of these things are part of that picture. But as temples, our lives are a testimony. In in many ways, and I don't want to necessarily unpack trying to make an analogy between how physical spaces have been used in the past. I just want to remind us that um, as a temple, we build a reputation for God. People see us, they assume they are seeing something about God because we are the temple. That's the claim in Scripture. If you're a follower of Christ, you've taken that upon yourself. I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. I am the temple of God. God dwells in me. That's amazing. That's amazing. It's also sobering. Because now I represent wherever I go. I represent. This should be our next t-shirt thing here in the church. Just, I represent. wonder what a difference it would make if we wore it everywhere so that at any given point someone could say to us, what do you represent? I represent Jesus. How comfortable would we be? It's situation after situation. If we really set people up to ask us that, a a t-shirt that's designed to ask questions, to remind us all day long, I'm representing, I'm a temple. Maybe that's even a better one, temple. Hashtag temple. Temple of what? Jesus. I'm way off my notes. I lost my train of thought now. Temple is a testimony. God doesn't need... Uh, doesn't need our bodies or our churches to be present in the world. Once again, his power and glory is not concentrated in a particular spot. Uh, But our temples stand for something. They stand for something. We have to take them seriously. Number two, a temple is a place of sacrifice. So 1 Peter 2, again, says we're spiritual stones built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Romans 12, 1 says, we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Um, so it's not that there are no more sacrifices in the new covenant. 
There's just no more sacrifices for the remission of sin. Jesus took care of that. But we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Paul said, I die daily. That's something I do every day. I googled this week to try to find an image for present your body as a living sacrifice. And this is what I found over and over. I don't like that image. The image we need, and this isn't going to work great, but I'd like an image of someone crawling reluctantly up onto an altar waiting to die. That's what we're called to do. Present our bodies as a living sacrifice. The problem with living sacrifices is that they want to crawl back off. Right? So, so this is what we do in a temple. In our bodies, and I would argue, and I'll talk more about this next week, in our church, this temple uh, is also a place where we come to die with others who know what it's like to die. Because now we're among people who understand. If there's something harder than dying, it's dying alone. One of the things the church promises is that you don't have to die alone. We all show up every Sunday when we walk into this room. Today is the day of your death. We die daily. And we can die alone or we can die together. I'd like to die together. Because then also we experience this being renewed, this being brought back to life. And it's not just the death, it's on the other side of that death is this renewal. This new life where the old things have passed away and all, and those, all things are becoming new. I'm getting excited, I can't get my words out. We get to do this together, right? This is part of what happens in a temple, it's a place of sacrifice. So we give our lives as a response to God, not to get God to respond. We don't do it to pay off a debt, it's to celebrate that our debt has been forgiven. We put ourselves on the altar. We don't put a substitute on the altar anymore. We don't give a portion. We give all. We don't do it once a week or once a month or once a year. We die daily. So we still have a pattern of sacrifice in our lives, just not a sacrifice that we need to save us. Jesus took care of that. This is the sacrificial response of joy, of thanks, of appreciation, of service, right? It's a response to God, not to get God to respond. Um, I have a quote I really like on this, and I somehow I deleted it out of your notes, and I deleted it out of mine too, but I think it's going to be on the screen here in a second. Here we go. From a guy named McLaren. He says, if there be any lesson which comes out of this great truth of Christians as temples... It's not a lesson of pluming ourselves and our dignity, like, ooh, have you seen this temple? Or losing ourselves in the mysticisms which lie near the truth. It's the hard lesson. If a temple, then an altar. If an altar, then a sacrifice. You are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, that you may offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, all for the sake and by the might of that dear Lord who has given himself a bleeding sacrifice for the sins of the whole world that we might offer a sacrifice of thanks and praise and self-surrender unto him. I like that. And then finally, a temple is a place of worship. And 
What I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about one or two, and then I, I might entirely put off the third point until next week because it's really the one I want to land on them. But a temple is a place of worship. Number one, it's transformative. And let me give you three quotes to explain what I mean by this. When we offer the sacrifice as our, of our lives as a continual act of worship, we are transformed to the image of Christ because we become what we worship. This is a biblical principle. Psalm 115.8 says, Those who make idols will be like them, as will all those who trust in them. We become like the things we worship. The things around which we orient our lives, the things to which we turn our eyes, we become like those things. It's almost this idea that as I look at a particular thing, my act of beholding it and focusing on it begins to change me. Like... I absorb the thing that I focus my eyes on in some way. I'm thinking of some weird sci-fi movie or something, not one that I've seen, but one someone should make, where as you look at this thing, the longer you look at this thing, the more you begin to visibly change, and people could tell what you've been staring at. How intimidating would that be? But that's the reality. Those who make idols will be like them, as all who will trust in them. A guy named Greg Beale wrote a book called We Become What We Worship. Here's his premise. What people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. I was reading uh, one of Tim Keller's books on Jonah this week, and he's talking about when the storm hit and the sailors were talking with Jonah about what's going on. And he says, to find out which deity Jonah had offended, they didn't need to ask, what is your God's name? All they had to ask was who Jonah was. In their minds, human identity factors were inextricably linked to what you worshipped. Who you were and what you worshipped were just two sides of the same coin. So the Bible says we're transformed by the renewing of our mind. I think the Bible is also teaching us a broader reality. That our minds are always being transformed and our images are always being conformed. The question isn't if it's happening. The question is, what are we looking like? What consumes us? What guides us? Where are the thoughts of our mind and the affections of our heart set? Are they set on Christ and the things of the kingdom? If so, we're being transformed into the image of Christ. But if they're not set there, we're being transformed into an image. It is inescapable. God has made us to be transformed people. Something will do it. What is doing it? Church, the temple, this place is an opportunity for transformation. So there's individually transformation in your body, but also here in this church community, I think it's a place that God has designed to be transformative for us. It's in this community as we die together, as we're renewed together, as we invest in each other because of Christ, there's something happening in this community. We are transformed. That's God's goal for the church, among many other things. Uh, I'm just going to give the second one yet. We're expressive. The temple is expressive. And by that, I simply mean that those of us who worship in the new covenant, we have to walk the talk. Our heart has to be expressed in our hands. Uh, The biblical image for this is that we're known by our fruit. If we don't like our fruit, 
We don't pick all the fruit and tape other fruit onto the branches. We need a new tree. And this is the idea, biblically speaking, worshipers are expressive. This is once again inescapable. I, I believe everybody worships in the sense that everybody is being transformed. Everybody's being changed into the image of something. We're also inescapably expressive. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's fruit. That's expression. It's reflecting something about what is inside of us. Uh, There's a longer verse on the screen. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. An evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what's in your heart. We are inescapably expressive people. The temple is meant to be expressive. This is a good thing. That's how God designed us. The question is, what are we expressing? And when people see the expression of our temple, both individually and corporately, what fruit do they see? Is it compelling? Is it beautiful? Or, or is it rotten? I mean, is that the two alternatives, I think? Maybe it's not quite ripe. That's a different thing. That's okay. We're getting there. So the temple is transformative. The temple is expressive. And next week, I'm going to talk about how the temple is communal. And and what I mean by that is we are not meant in the kingdom of God to live in isolation. God has made us for community. And particularly in the community of the church, incredible things happen when we stay deeply invested in the community of God's people. But I don't have time for that today, so we're going to land there next week. Lord, I am grateful uh, that you're a God who dwells in these temples. uh, That you see fit to even use that language for us. Because you also use language that we're jars of clay. I mean, there's other language in the Bible that definitely humbles us. But this language of temple, it's an honoring term. It's an amazing term that you move in and take up residence in us. Lord, I pray for one, that we take this seriously. Just like the Israelites in the Old Testament understood the temple was holy ground. Lord, my life is holy ground. Our lives are holy ground. The community of this church body is holy ground. Uh, Lord, through the power of your spirit, help that sink into us. Give us wisdom about what this means. And then, Lord, as we are transformed, may it always be into your image. And may we always give you the glory for it. And as we are expressive about what's happening in us, Lord, I, I pray that the fruit of your work, in, well, I know the fruit of your, of your work in our life is beautiful. Lord, may that increasingly characterize the fruit that we produce. That it is clear to all about the power of Christ in us. Making beautiful things out of broken, ugling things. Making temples out of clay pots. And may this inspire us to sacrifice our lives to you. Not because we're forcing a response from you. Not because we're saving ourselves. But simply, Lord, help us to grasp the enormity of what you've done so that we give back to you in love and appreciation and gratitude and thankfulness for the amazing thing that you've done for us. 
pray all these things in your name, Lord. Amen. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.